lots of time. Please keep praying for that. Okay, so enough of that. Let's, uh, let's pray. Father, we ask that you would just open our eyes tonight as we dig back into this book of Revelation. Thank you, Father, that we are promised a blessing just by reading through this book. And we ask that your Holy Spirit would give us understanding, not the political ideology or uh, slant of, of any of us, Lord. That's not important, but rather what your word says, your word alone, that we would be true to your word and that we would see Jesus tonight, in whose name we pray, amen, amen. Well, once again, welcome to Revelation. We are going to pick up where we left off last week in Revelation chapter 9. Revelation chapter 9. And uh, we left off in verse 13. As you know, Revelation chapter 9 verse 13 uh, speaks about the gold altar that stands in the presence of God as John was in the spirit on the Lord's day on the island of Patmos as a prisoner being sent out to this deserted island to die with a bunch of other prisoners. And as he was in the Spirit, the Holy Spirit of God gave him an insight that was then transcribed into the book of the revelation of Jesus Christ. Not the revelation of John, but the revelation of Jesus Christ. And that is the last book of our Bible. And so he saw the gold altar in verse 13 that stands in the presence of God that has four projections, one at each corner, and these projections are called horns. We talked about that last week. The four horns on the altar that he sees in heaven um, go back to Exodus uh, chapters 25, 26, 27, and the four uh, horns on the altar in the tabernacle, that very elaborate tent that traveled with the children of Israel on their 40-year sojourn through Israel, a very circuitous route, uh, was used to hold down or to tie the sacrifice to. So the sacrifice, whatever type of animal, varied by what was uh, appropriate, was tied to these four horns on the altar. And this was the place where sacrifices would be made, where blood would be shed, and it represents the cross. Jesus Christ was tied to the altar of the cross, not by spikes through his wrists or through just above his feet, but he was tied by the bands of love that he had for you and for me. Now I can understand that love, when it comes to my wife, Robin. Everybody loves Robin. She is so lovable. But when it comes to me, I don't get it. I don't understand it. How my Lord, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, would love me, such a knucklehead, to go through what he went on my behalf. He was bound by the bands of love. The Bible says in Mark chapter 15, the leading priests and teachers of religious law also mocked Jesus. He saved others, they scoffed, but he can't save himself. Let this Messiah, this King of Israel, come down from the cross so we can see it and believe him. Even the men who were crucified with Jesus ridiculed him. As we ended on last night, that was just before the one thief on the cross next to him came to his senses and said, oh Lord, remember me. That thief never went to synagogue. He never went to a church service. 
He didn't wear the right religious clothes. He didn't do the, as Pastor Daniel says, the two-handed Christian handshake. He didn't know any Christianese. He didn't do good. He didn't give any money. He was a thief. In fact, he was such a miserable thief that he was sentenced to die because of the hurt that he caused so many other people. And Jesus looked into his eyes and he said, today you will be with me in paradise. He didn't say that to any of the 12 disciples, but he did say that to that thief, to that scum of society. And he said, today you will be with me in paradise. You see, the people that raised these questions failed to understand and were unable to comprehend that if he had saved himself, if Jesus had come down on that cross, from that cross, he couldn't save them. So that's where we left off last week. Now in verse 14, the scene shifts to the Euphrates River. The Euphrates River, and as you recall, it was part of the original boundary of the Garden of Eden. So where is the Garden of Eden? Well, one of the boundaries we know was the Euphrates River. How do we know? The Bible tells us so. It also marked the east boundary of the promised land. Today, much of that promised land, not all of it, but a good portion of it, includes the modern state of Israel. God deeded that land to Abraham. Remember we talked about the scroll that John said, who is worthy to, un to open this scroll, to break the seals? And no one was found worthy. There were many people willing, uh, Napoleon and Adolf Hitler and possibly even Vladimir Putin. Uh, I, I don't know. But many people wanting to open it up, but none worthy, only Jesus was worthy. And the angel said, stop crying, John. Jesus is the Lamb of God. He is the worthy one that could open it up. And so that spoke about the title deed to planet Earth for you, including for you and for me. But God deeded to Abraham the promised land, Genesis 15, 18. And the Bible says in verse 14 of Revelation 9 that the four angels who are bound at the great Euphrates River, in other words, these fallen angels, these demons, these unidentified demons who are exceedingly evil and will be exceedingly destructive during this part of the great or of the, the tribulation. Now, although these four angels had been prepared for this particular hour and day and month and year, the Bible says in verses 14 and 15, were turned loose to kill one third of all the remaining people that were still alive on planet Earth. They didn't have the power, though, did you notice, to release themselves and to do their evil work on earth. That is what Satan wants to do. He wants to destroy marriages. He wants to destroy nations. He wants to destroy people's health. He wants to destroy relationships. He wants to destroy hope. One of his words, one of the, his names, in fact, is the destroyer. But they didn't have the power to release themselves. They were held back by God and released at this particular time. God allowed them to be released. God is allowing the horrendous things that are taking place in Ukraine right now. I don't know why. I don't understand why. But God is allowing it. God is allowing the beheadings, the vile 
treatment of women and children that we can't begin to discuss in good taste tonight that's taking place right now in Afghanistan. Cannot begin to describe that God is allowing this. Why? I don't know. They're held back by God doing only what he allows them to do, but with God, nothing is random or out of control. But, but, but when these most powerful demons are loosed, they will kill approximately one-third of the people still alive on planet Earth. Now you add that to the one-quarter of the world's population that has already been killed, Revelation 6, verses 7 and 8 particularly, we see that over 50% of all humanity that was left behind when the rapture took place, when Christians, when the bride of Christ went up to meet our Lord in the air, over one half of all humanity will already have been killed on planet Earth. So how will this happen? Well, let's continue. There's a correlation with the release of the four demons that we read about in this chapter and war on earth. The Bible says an army of 200 million mounted troops will be led by these four demons in Revelation 9 verse 16. Now John makes it clear that this is the exact number. He's not just saying there's a whole bunch. It could be 10 million, it could be 100 million, it could be 500 million, I don't know, but there's a whole lot. No, the Bible says this was the exact number in verse 16. And as you know, I clearly remember the, the alarms that went off among Christians that studied eschatology, the study of the end times, in 1965. Yes, I remember that. Well, most of you were not even born then, but I remember it well. When China boasted an army of 200 million soldiers back in 1965. Now, granted, that included their reserve troops and all that, but it was national and international headlines. The description of fire and smoke and sulfur in this passage leads some people to believe that John is giving the best description he can of modern war machines, guns, tanks, missiles, and so forth. Those things that we're seeing uh, coming from Russia, which we will see later on in the Revelation, it is mentioned by name as they move on into Ukraine, and who knows where they'll go after that. But it's, it's uh, this army, whatever the description is, it's set in motion by the four fallen angels in verse 15. It's compromised of much more than military generals. Now, what John could be describing, a modern army that we know of today, could be describing military generals, political coalitions, but these demons, and they are demons, how do we know? The Bible tells us so, are stinging, they're marching, and what is the response of the people? Well, let's read on in verse 20. The Bible says in verse 20, but the people who did not die in these plagues plagues still refused to repent of their evil deeds and turn to God. They continued to worship demons and idols made of gold, silver, bronze, stone, and wood. Idols that could neither see nor hear nor walk. Verse 20. Okay, David, how does that apply to us today? We understand Vanuatu where you lived with those cannibals and you know 
warfare still continues with their bows and arrows and spears, and occasionally one person is hit, and that's a major, major war in tribal warfare in Vanuatu. That's your background, David, but come on. We're in the 21st century, and uh, things are different now. How does this apply to us today? Do we, have any, do we really have today, in much of the world, idols made of gold, silver, bronze, stone, and wood? Hmm. You be the judge. If you have a garage, you might want to walk inside your garage. Take a look. If you own a home, whether it be a large home or a small home, you might want to think about what that home and that investment means to you, the place that it has in your heart. The Bible says where your treasure is, there will your heart be. The Bible does not say where your heart is, there will your treasure be. That's not found anywhere in scripture. Where your treasure is, there will your heart be. What do we have as treasure? Well, until we get later on in the book of Revelation and we see the decline and the abolition of the United States dollar, which is very close. You follow the news. It's on the headlines every day. Until we get there, we have invested our dollars and our time, perhaps the most valuable resource we have, into certain things. And I think about that when I wash our pride and joy, our Subaru. <laughs> it works for us. But even a Subaru, even a lowly Subaru can be an idol, can't it? Even a 500 and some odd square foot home that, like Robin and I have. It's not a mansion up in Aspen, but even a 500 and some odd square foot home, that can be an idol, can't it? very easily or what's in your closet or what's in your bank account. These can all be idols. The word witchcraft in verse 21 is pharmakeos in the Greek. You've probably heard this in sermons. We get our word pharmacy from this. And drugs can affect and do affect both body and soul. The last few years as people have taken a position regarding the COVID vaccine and the booster vaccines. It's in some ways divided our country. It's caused a breakup of friendships and, and, and so forth and so on. But be that as it may, whether it's COVID vaccine or whether it's the flu vaccine or the, the DBT vaccine or whatever it may be, vaccines affect both body and soul. We get our word uh, suke so, so, from that. We get our word psychologist, psychology. It affects one way or another our entire being, for the good or maybe not for the good. During tax time, we sometimes hear people justifying not paying their taxes for a variety of reasons. Oh, government, now I can't. Look who's in the White House now. Or look who was in the White House last time. Or look who's going to be in the White House. Look who's controlling Congress. For a variety of reasons. You know, that's theft. That is theft. 
And that is clear in the scripture. Whether we agree with our government or not, whether we are Republican or Democrat, liberal or conservative, it makes no difference. That is theft. How do I know? The Bible tells us so. Perhaps that's why many people are experiencing tribulation in their personal lives. They're selling their soul, if you would, to the world for a few bucks. So think about that as tax time right now. Those of you that have done your taxes, those of you that haven't done your taxes like me, uh uh-oh, think about that. Now, although it's true, demons cannot possess a believer. That is impossible. Greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. If you are a believer, we talked about this last week, you have the Holy Spirit. So the question is not, do you have the Holy Spirit? Like some churches might say, the question is, does the Holy Spirit have you? Are you filled with the Holy Spirit? Are you confessing your sins? Are you spending time with him daily? Um, but the Holy Spirit, but the demons cannot possess a believer because, John 4, 4, the spirit is, who lives in you is greater than the spirit who lives in the world. But there is such a thing for believers as demon oppression. Believers can be oppressed by demons. Your life will be oppressed if you allow demons entry points into your life. The Bible names some of these entry points. Sexual immorality or theft, verse 21. The majority of those still alive on earth at this time are involved in idolatry, murder, occult practices, stealing, sexual immorality. That's what the Bible says. That's what people are doing, those that are alive during this time. When I speak of this time, we're talking about the tribulation, the time that you and I as believers are with our Lord on that seven-year honeymoon with him before we return to planet earth during his second coming. These people who are still on planet earth refuse to repent or stop what they're doing. Most of those still alive adopt the motto, it's everyone for himself. So far, John has described the four living creatures, these angels, standing around God's throne and how 10,000 times 10,000, whatever that number is, of other angels gather around to sing his praises. And we've already gone over some of the songs that we will be singing in heaven. And Micah, our worship leader here at the Orchard Church, I don't know if she'll be the worship leader in heaven, but maybe she'll be the worship leader of our little section singing these songs that we've already read about in heaven. They gather around. He described another angel slinging a fiery censer back to earth and seven others playing their trumpets. And we've talked about the seven seal judgments and now the seven trumpet judgments. It seems everywhere John looks, angels are performing magnificent feats. But now, at the end of chapter 9, he says, I see a mighty angel. None of these angels before were called mighty. So let's read on Revelation chapter 10, beginning in verse 1. Revelation 10. Then I saw another mighty angel coming down from heaven, surrounded by a cloud with a rainbow over his head. His face shone like the sun, and his feet were like pillars of fire. And in his hand was a small scroll that had been opened. He stood with his right foot on the sea and his left foot on the land. And he gave a great shout like the roar of a lion. And when he shouted, 
The seven thunders answered. When the seven thunders spoke, I was about to write, but I heard a voice from heaven saying, keep secret what the seven thunders said and do not write it down. Verse five, then the angel, then the angel I saw standing on the sea and on the land raised his right hand toward heaven. He swore an oath in the name of the one who lives forever and ever, who created the heavens and everything in them, the earth and everything in it, and the sea and everything in it. He said, there will be no more delay. Verse 7, when the seventh angel blows his trumpet, God's mysterious plan will be fulfilled. It will happen just as he announced to his servants, the prophets. Then a voice from heaven spoke to me again, go and take the open scroll from the hand of the angel who is standing on the sea and on the land. Verse 9, so I went to the angel and told him to give me the small scroll. Yes, take it and eat it, he said. It will be as sweet as honey in your mouth, but it will turn sour in your stomach. So I took the small scroll from the hand of the angel and ate it. It was sweet in my mouth, but when I swallowed it, it turned sour in my stomach. Then I was told, you must prophesy again about many peoples, nations, languages, and kings. Revelation chapter 10. In contrast to Revelation chapter 9 that we've already studied, which is dark and, and dismal, chapter 10 of Revelation is, is bright, it's uplifting. It's after the darkness, and after the darkness comes the light. How does the light come? In the form of an awesome angel, a mighty angel, this ambassador from heaven we read about in verse 1. This is the angel who takes on the characteristics of Jesus Christ. Why? Why? Because this angel is close to Jesus in heaven. He's close. He's in the presence of Jesus, and so he takes on the characteristics of Jesus. And my dear friends, whether you're watching from Afghanistan, Pakistan, Vanuatu, Canada, United States, wherever you're watching from, you can be just the same. The same that was true for this angel is true for us. If we spend time with our Lord, we will begin to sound like him. We'll begin to look like him and will begin to act like him a little more each day. I think of my grandmother. I remember her in fourth grade when my mother and my younger sister and younger brother got on a train and the steam locomotive in those days, remember I was born in the early 1800s, so the steam locomotive in those days literally left Portland, Oregon and it was called the Owl Express. And choo, 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 it made its way down to Southern California. And we spent uh, several months in Southern California as my grandmother was dying of cancer. Back in those days, there was no cure. There was no medication. You just tried to comfort somebody who was dying in cancer. And my mother came to comfort her mother, my grandmother. And my grandmother would get up early in the morning 
and she would put the crocheted shawl that she crocheted around her knees and her legs and down to her ankles, and she sat in front of the little gas, they don't even have them anymore, but funny little gas fireplace that looked like it was made out of clay. And we would sit cozying up there next to her feet, next to her, next to the fireplace, and she would tell us about Jesus. And she would read to us from the Bible. And we memorized fourth grade, first grade, and preschool. We were our ages at that time. We would memorize psalms. And to this day, I still know by heart those psalms. My grandmother was dying of cancer, and yet she looked like Jesus. Even to her final days, she died at home, she looked like Jesus. She sounded like Jesus. Oh, not some booming, thunderous voice, but a soft, in some ways weak, yet in many ways strong voice. She reflected Jesus. And so the same is true with us. Whatever our age, whatever our physical appearance, when we spend time with him, we will look like him, we will sound like him, and we will act like him. So the purpose of this mighty angel is clear, to announce final judgments on planet Earth. Now, we read that his right foot was on the sea, and his left foot was on the land. And this represents that his words deal with all creation. Robin and I spending almost all of our married life in Hawaii, that really makes sense because we lived on the beach and we looked out oh, three or four months a year, right, we just, right from our little apartment as we looked out, we saw the wheels jumping out of the water and coming down with a big curse splash. We were right at ground zero where the uh, humpback whales come to mate and come to give birth. And they don't eat anything because they come down from Alaska where they eat up in Alaska, but there's no food in Maui. So they just celebrate the birth of their young ones and they celebrate the happiness that they have in finding their mate by jumping up out of the water and splashing down on the water. And it resonates there. But we think that this represents that his words deal with all creation. The three quarters of our planet that are covered in water as well as land. Not just a limited part as did the seal and the trumpet judgments in, in, you know, in verse, verse 1 and 2. But, but the Bible says this angel was holding a small scroll in verse 2. Not the 15-foot-long scroll that we studied earlier, the seven seals. This was one of the small ones, like the book of Jude, like the, like the book of, of 3 John, just written on one page, one sheet of papyrus. And the Bible says that seven thunderous voices roar in response to the angel in verse 3. A few months ago, I was teaching at a Bible college in, in uh, Africa, in Tanzania, Africa. And uh, Robin was teaching in an elementary school in Tanzania, Africa. And it was an intense time of teaching. We worked almost round the clock. And then afterwards, we went out for a couple of days and went on a safari in Tanzania. And we saw a whole lot of lions. And most of the time, they were sleeping just sleeping. Not very exciting. They were just sleeping. But once in a while, they roared. 
And when they roared, oh my goodness, now we know why they're called the king of the jungle. It was really cool. And the uh, pumbas, you know, the, the little warthogs, they went scattering in all directions. So it's pretty cool. So the lions, the thunderous voices, what did they say? Well, we don't know what they said. John was about to record what this angel said, but, 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 but for the first time, he was forbidden to do so in verse 4. Why is the message of these seven thunderous voices hidden? Why is it not even mentioned? It's very simple, but a very significant reminder placed in the middle of this book that there are some things we simply are not going to know until we get to heaven. The Bible says, the Lord our God has secrets known to no one. Deuteronomy 29, 29. Why? Why do you suppose this is? Well, I would suggest to you a couple of reasons. Number one, not knowing keeps us humble. When we think we have all the answers in any given area, not just the Bible, but in any given area, we can become puffed up, we can become self-sufficient, but not knowing the answers, not having the solutions to every single problem, produces in us a humility that ultimately makes us very happy because it takes all the pressure off. So when Robin asked me, why is that, Dave? Why is that? I said, I don't know. So I don't have to be puffed up. It just causes me to be humble. Why is that? What's going on? I don't know. I don't know. David wrote in Psalm 131, verse 1 and 2, Lord, I have given up my pride and turned away from my arrogance. I am not concerned with great matters or with subjects too difficult for me. Instead, I am content and at peace. As a child lies quietly in its mother's arms, so my heart is quiet within me. I love it. Second, not knowing keeps us stable. Keeps us stable. Not only humble, but stable. The Bible says in Philippians 4, 6, and 7, don't worry about anything. Instead, pray about everything. Tell God what you need and thank him for all he has done. Then you will experience God's peace, which exceeds anything we can understand. His peace will guard your hearts and minds as you live in Christ Jesus. You won't find a single verse in the Bible that promises that we will understand everything. No matter how filled with the Spirit we are, no matter how many Bible verses we memorize, no matter how often we go to church, there's not one single verse that promises that we will understand why things are happening. Why did the Holocaust take place? Why did the marriage break up? Why was the child not healed? But, 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 but we know, we know that God does cause everything to work together for the good of those who love God and are called, called according to his purpose for them. Romans 8, 28. Many of you have memorized this verse. Paul didn't write, note here, gang, Paul didn't write, <clears throat> we see all things working together for good. He didn't write that because we may not see that happen this side of eternity. Maybe a big question. But because we may not see what happens this time of eternity, when we get to heaven, we'll say, thank you, Lord, for your goodness and grace in allowing us that trial. I thought it was a tragedy, but, but now I see. 
that righteous and true are your judgments, O Lord. So we may not see, but by faith we know. Now in verse 6, the Greek word translated delay in that particular verse is chronos. Most of you know this. We get our term chronograph, the study of time, chronology, a study of human behavior and human communication, chronemics. Different societies have different ways they deal with time. Very interesting. Sometimes we pray, thy kingdom come. But then we pray, but where are you, Lord? I've already prayed thy kingdom come, but you're not here yet. Where are you? The Bible gives us the reason. The Bible says in 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9, the Lord isn't really being slow about his promise, as some people think. No, he's being patient for your sake. He does not want anyone to be destroyed, but wants everyone to repent. Everyone means everyone. That means Vladimir Putin. That means Idi Amin Dada. That means Saddam Hussein. That means Adolf Hitler. That means everyone. God is long-suffering. He's waiting for people to give their lives to Jesus. Not just saying, I believe in Jesus. Oh, I, yeah, I, I, I go to church on Christmas and Easter. That's not a Christian. Giving their lives to Jesus is a Christian. Becoming a disciple of Jesus Christ. But, but the day is coming when there will be no more delay. He is patiently waiting. Because John readers, John's readers at this time were seeing family members tortured, beat, terrible, terrible things were taking place, he writes in verse 7, there's coming a time when all the questions you've had and all the pain you've been experiencing will come to an end, verse 7. Like the book the angel gave John to eat in verse 9. So is the word of God. The Bible says in Psalm 119, verse 103, how sweet, are, how sweet your words taste to me. They are sweeter than honey. Maybe you've sang that song. Sweeter are your words, sweeter than the honeycomb. Since John was beginning to see not only God's plan, but his timing, this was a sweet treat. But come on in. But, but, but just as the full effect of what he was seeing began to sink in, the facts were unsettling. The good news was that God had a definite plan, and it was, and, and it was about to take action. The bad news was that God had a definite plan and was about to take action. Good news and bad news. Even today, some people read the book of Revelation with dread and, and fear and trembling. It gives them indigestion, if you will. Others eat up the book of Revelation. They can't get enough of it as a promise of the final countdown to a time when every injustice is made right. But, gang, for us as the bride of Christ, for us as Christians, if the sweet word we take in through Bible study, through devotions, doesn't create a sour taste in our lives, then something's wrong. The fact that we're saved is sweet, sweet indeed. But the fact that people we love are going to hell, that should create a bitterness in our gut. After Ezekiel ate the book that was sweet to his mouth, but bitter to his belly, 
he shared God's word boldly to people that had previously been afraid. We read in Ezekiel chapter 3. It's the bitterness in his belly that motivated Ezekiel to share the truth. I hope that's the same way with us. People that we love. Grandkids, nieces, nephews, uncles, aunts, just friends for years. I hope there's a bitterness in our belly when we think about them. We won't be content. We're not just going to smile and laugh and everything's cool. That there's a bitterness and it motivates us to get right in their face and to say, you need Jesus. You don't need to believe in Jesus. The devil believes in Jesus. You need to give your heart, your soul, your mind, your body to Jesus Christ and make him Lord of your life. And if you will, then these fruits will follow. God help us. I, I, I'm sure you're aware of that. Uh, this message is not being proclaimed in many churches across our land today. It's just God wants you well and happy and feeling good and laughing and celebrating that's not the essence of being a true disciple of Jesus Christ. If any man comes after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. One state just this week reinitiated death by, by shooting gallery. Is that the right name? Firing, firing gallery. Squad. By, thank you. By firing squad. The, a, a, a more correct analogy might be if, if any man comes after me, let him deny himself, call out his firing squad. Dying to self. That's what it's all about. So, John was told in verse 11, you must prophesy again about many peoples, nations, languages, and kings. In verse 11, the idea of must is not a command that God's given him. This is a statement of what will happen when we take in the word of God. So how will we know when we've really, really heard the word of God? How will we know when we have compassion for the unsaved and we are willing to lay down our lives for them and we're willing to lay down even our friendship for them. We're willing to lay down what they might think about us. We're willing to say, I don't care if you ever talk to me again in the rest of your life, but you must, you must give your life, your soul, your spirit to Jesus Christ and follow him as your Lord. So when we love God, when we love people, we'll do this. Devouring and digesting the word of God, bitter portions as well as sweet, will empower us to impact the world for the kingdom. So after dining on a fine fillet of scroll, get it? Get it? We have scroll. John was given a task to do. God never assigns anyone a task without also giving them the tools to accomplish it. So along with the job assignment, John was handed a measuring rod and told to measure the temple. So are you ready to go? Here we go. Revelation chapter 11. We are now one half of the way through the book of Revelation. Revelation chapter 11, verse 1. Then I was given a measuring stick, and I was told, Go and measure the temple of God and the altar, and count the number of worshipers. 
but do not measure the outer courtyard, for it has been turned over to the nations. They will trample the holy city for 42 months. And I will give power to my two witnesses, and they will be clothed in burlap and will prophesy during those 1,260 days. It's interesting, side note, the word days there is not figurative, but literal. It's the same word for day when we go back to Genesis and God created day and night, the 24-hour day that we have now. Verse 4, these two prophets are the two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of all the earth. If anyone tries to if anyone tries to harm them, fire flashes from their mouths and consumes their enemies. This is how anyone who tries to harm them must die. Verse 6, they have power to shut the sky so that no rain will fall as long as they prophesy. And they have the power to turn the rivers and oceans into blood and to strike the earth with every kind of plague as often as they wish. When they complete their testimony, the beast that comes up out of the bottomless pit, we've studied about that, will declare war against them, and he will conquer them and kill them. Verse 8, and their bodies will lie in the main street of Jerusalem, the city that is figuratively called Sodom and Egypt, the city where, the, where their Lord was crucified, and for three and a half days... All peoples, tribes, languages, and nations will stare at their bodies. No one will be allowed to bury them. All the people who belong to this world will gloat over them and give presents to each other to celebrate the death of the two prophets who had tormented them. Verse 11, but after three and a half days, God breathed life into them and they stood up. Terror struck all who were staring at them. Then a loud voice from heaven called to the two prophets, Come up here. And they rose to heaven in a cloud as their enemies watched. Wow. Verse 13. At the same time, there was a terrible earthquake that destroyed a tenth of the city. 7,000 people died in that earthquake, and everyone else was terrified and gave glory to the God of heaven. The second terror is past, but look, the third terror is coming quickly. Verse 15, then the seventh angel blew his trumpet, and there were loud voices shouting in heaven, the world has now become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he will reign forever and ever. Does that ring a bell? At Christmas time, we sing that, don't we, from Handel's Messiah. This is right where it came from. Verse 16, the 24 elders sitting on their thrones before God fell with their faces to the ground and worshiped him. And they said, we give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty, the Almighty, the one who is and who always was. For now you have assumed your great power and have begun to reign. The nations were filled with wrath, but now the time of your wrath has come. It is time to judge the dead and reward your servants, the prophets, as well as your holy people and all who fear your name. From the least to the greatest, 
it is time to destroy all who have caused destruction on the earth. Verse 19, then in heaven, the temple of God was opened and the ark of his covenant could be seen inside the temple. Lightning flashed, thunder crashed, and roared, and there was an earthquake and a terrible hailstorm. So, Revelation chapter 11. Now, a measuring stick in John's day would be approximately 10 feet long. I don't have the time to go into that, but trust me, archaeologists, historians, uh, it, it, that's, that's confirmed from verse 1. So midway through the tribulation, here in the 11th chapter, John is told to measure the temple. Therefore, he appears, uh, there, there appears to be a functioning temple at this time. That's very important. The temple gang, we're going to spend the rest of tonight and part of next week on the temple. It is crucial that you understand the temple. It is critical. Everything else will make sense. So we're going to spend some time on the temple tonight. Uh, There appears to be a functioning temple at this time of history. The temple is an important part of God's plan throughout the Bible. Before the temple, you remember the tabernacle out in the wilderness. Solomon built the first temple on Mount Moriah just outside Jerusalem in the year 1050 B.C. B.C. Very interesting. That is where Isaac, where Abraham took his son Isaac, the same mountain, and offered him to the Lord as a sacrifice. You remember the story? If you don't remember the story, go online. I preached a whole sermon one Sunday morning here on that. And Abraham laid his Isaac down on that altar. And he raised his knife. You know the story. And at the last possible second said, God, wait. God's told Abraham, wait, don't kill your son. You've demonstrated to me that, that I am Lord of your life and of everything. Go into the thicket there and you'll find a ram that I've provided. Abraham must have scratched his head and said, well, yeah, ram, that's, that's good. God said, offer, the sacrifice, offer that ram as a sacrifice. And Abraham said, well, okay, that's good, but didn't you promise a lamb? You promised a lamb. God, are you getting the two confused? There's a little bit of difference between a ram and a lamb. The sacrifice fulfilled the requirements on that particular day that Abraham made his sacrifice on Mount Moriah. But it didn't fulfill the sacrifice that was required by God for your sins and mine and the sins of the world. It wasn't until thousands of years later, about 3,000 years later, that the lamb was sacrificed on Mount Moriah, also called Calvary. Pretty cool, huh? So he was told to measure the temple. Now, uh, Solomon built the first temple on Mount Moriah about 1050 BC, about 400 years later, the Babylonian king, you remember Nebuchadnezzar, affectionately known as Nebi, began a siege of Jerusalem, and that siege continued for many months. You know, um, the city of Mariupol, if I'm pronouncing that correctly, uh, in Ukraine is under siege right now, isn't it? And some of the reports coming out are, are gruesome. Uh, people drinking whatever liquid they can find um, just to stay alive. 
terrible, terrible things that are going on. This was like the siege in Jerusalem for uh, this time during Nebuchadnezzar at the height of the famine. It, was, it, it, it said that uh, people were eat, even eating bird dung. Uh, so the Babylonian army finally uh, broke through the walls as the people were under siege in Jerusalem and they slaughtered many of the surviving inhabitants, those that hadn't starved to death uh, in the city. And then they burned and destroyed the temple in the year 586 BC. The city laid in ruins after that time until the rebuilding effort led by Nehemiah. Remember Nehemiah? Uh, in, in 2 Kings chapter 24 and 2 Chronicles chapter 36. During this time, Ezekiel encouraged his fellow exiles with prophecies of the restoration of the temple. They were building the walls, but Ezekiel here encourages them about the restoration of the temple, both in the immediate future and in the distant future. Study the book of Ezekiel. Israel was without a temple for the first time since Solomon's reign. The temple, as you know, represented God's presence. So in the year 573, B.C., Ezekiel received a vision of the glorious temple to come. The vision represented the hope and restoration of God's presence among his people, Ezekiel 10 and Ezekiel 33. So when King Cyrus of Persia uh, conquered uh, Babylon, that would be modern-day Iraq, Iran, conquered Babylon, he issued a decree allowing the Israelites to return to Jerusalem and Ezra record in his book that more than 40,000 Jews returned to Jerusalem. So about 70 years after Babylon's first invasion of Israel, Zerubbabel began rebuilding the temple in 536 BC. However, construction stopped, as you know, when opposition arose uh, from neighboring nations and it wasn't until God used Haggai and Zechariah to lead the Israelites in 516 BC to uh, complete the project. You can read about it in Ezra chapter 1 um, all the way through Ezra chapter 6. However, the temple was much smaller than the temple of Solomon's time. This temple remained standing for about 500 years longer, however, than Solomon's temple. And so in an effect, or in an effort to gain the favor of the Jewish people, King Herod enlarged and expanded uh, the temple in 20 BC. He did this not because of any religious uh, ideology, but because he simply wanted to remain in, in power. So the project took decades to complete. The temple grounds were expanded to 36 acres, and this was the temple that served during the time of Jesus. And this is the place that we'll be going to, some of you, next month, and you'll be walking on some of the temple steps exactly where Jesus walked. We know for sure you'll be walking and stepping right on the same steps that Jesus stepped on. So many scholars consider this temple to simply be an expansion of the second temple. Jesus referred to this temple when he said in Matthew 24 too, do you see all these buildings? I tell you the truth, they will be completely demolished. Not one stone will be left on top of another. 40 years after Jesus' resurrection, his prophecy was fulfilled when the Jewish zealots, those are the guys that were 
Jews, but they were, man, they were patriots, Jewish patriots, I think. The Jewish zealots, they led an uprising against the Roman rule in the year 66, and they successfully drove out the Roman army out of Jerusalem. So Emperor Nero sent his son, Titus, who just happened to be a general. It's nice when your dad is the emperor. You don't have to worry about being a private uh, or a sergeant uh, or, or a lieutenant. You just go straight to general. So he sent his son Titus to quell the revolt. And so General Titus conquered almost all of Judea and he laid siege to Jerusalem. And that siege again, another siege, lasted, lasted 143 days before breaking through the walls and while decimating the city, the, 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 the you know, soldiers gone wild, decimating the city and the temple, one Roman soldier destroyed the orders of General Titus. He picked up his torch and he threw it into the temple. It started on fire and it was soon engulfed in flames. And the flames were so high and so hot that it caused all the gold in the temple that we read about earlier to melt and to run down through the temple walls and into the cracks of these 100-ton stones. Not one-ton stones, not 10-ton stones, 100-ton stones mashed with great precision. And to this day, engineers from around the world still can't figure out how the people at that time were so skilled in putting these 100-ton stones that were cut a long distance away, transported into place in such a excellent way that no mortar was needed. And next month, some of you will be seeing those very stones. You'll be touching them. You'll be walking right next to them. So it went down into the cracks. The soldiers pulled down every stone from the walls to get to the gold, and this fulfilled the prophecy to the letter. Every one of these 100-ton stones that Jesus said would not be standing, every single one was taken down. But the Bible says there's a third temple yet to be built. Now, at the Temple Institute in Jerusalem, and if you're going to Israel with us, you will be going to the Temple Institute. It is so cool. At the Temple Institute in Jerusalem, you can see the actual, it's not some show like Disneyland, it's the actual preparation for the building of the third temple. This is the temple where the Antichrist will blaspheme the name of God and demand that everybody in the world worships him. Plans are already completed. All the tools, all the instruments of temple worship, you'll see them with your own eyes. They are crafted in exactly the way that God told them to be crafted according to the Old Testament regulations. They are completed. For those of you not going to Israel with us, you can go to the Temple Institute site. I think I put it in your notes. Is it there? So you can go online, check it out. Now, two yeshivas or schools are currently training young men only with the last name of Cohen. C-O-H-E-N, good Jewish name, isn't it? Well, yeah, it better be a good Jewish name because it means priest. So these schools are taking place right now in Jerusalem to, sac to teach them how to properly, according to the strict biblical 
mandates to sacrifice animals in the temple tradition. Why? Because the Orthodox Jewish community understands that without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Leviticus 17, Hebrews 9.22. And since they don't believe that Jesus is the Messiah who died for their sins, they realize they must make a sacrifice for the forgiveness of their sins. And there's this longing all over Israel, around the world, of Orthodox Jews that are longing for this day to happen. They can't wait for these sacrifices to be made. In fact, in recent months, even this week, full-dress reenactments have taken place uh, related to the original daily Talmud service. You can read more about that in Leviticus if you want. The water libation, the Passover offering, the sharut, the first fruits, various other special temple services, and all the rest of the Jewish annual feast day celebrations. These young men are going through and learning every nuance in great detail. So the Temple Institute has even set up training classes to carefully teach the priests, going on as the Kohanim, how to precisely perform each temple worship activity. The Kohanim are being prepared for the day when the new temple is dedicated on the Temple Mount in Jerusalem. Now, according to prophecy, the temple must be rebuilt to fulfill the prophecies of the Antichrist desecration of it near the midpoint of the tribulation. That's where we are right now in our study. In an ultimate act of defiance against the one true God, the Antichrist is prophesied to stop the sacrifices, stop the worship, and proclaim himself to be God in the temple. Blasphemy of blasphemies. Other biblical prophecies also indicate that the temple must be rebuilt to fulfill the prophecies of the Lord's return as he is prophesied to descend in glory upon the Mount of Olives. And as we discussed last week, a major fault, the rift fault that runs through Israel all the way down to North Africa, one of the most stressful faults, if you would, in the world, runs right through the middle of the Mount of Olives, and the geologists and the seismologists say, this thing should have happened a long time ago. It's ready to go at any minute. Suddenly, Jesus will descend with a great earthquake as the Mount of Olives splits wide open to fulfill these prophecies, and he will come, he will enter into his temple through the east gate. How do we know? The Bible tells us so. Ezekiel 43, verses 1 through 4, Acts 1, verses 9 through 11. Now hang with me, gang. This is all part of the temple. Many Jews strongly believe that they will again have a place of worship in Jerusalem upon the Temple Mount, possibly within the next few years. The Levitical, Levitical priests, as we talked about, are preparing for that day. And for the first time in 2,000 years, they're training the Levites how to carry out the worship of God according to the laws of Moses. The rebuilding 
of the temple in Jerusalem will be a significant prophetic fulfillment. There are many people who say that the stones have already been cut for this temple, for the third temple, and they're being hidden, and the location where they're being hidden varies. I don't know. I don't know. Many people say that's happened. I don't know if it's happened or not. But it will happen at exactly the right time. According to the laws of Moses, the rebuilding of the temple in Jerusalem will be a huge fulfillment of prophecy. And it will put in place one of the key prophecies related to the final seven-year period before the second coming occurs. It will also signal that the final events of the third times, of the, of the end of times, have truly come upon us. There can be no doubt that we're definitely getting closer to the day when we will see the Lord return. Return, that's after the rapture. That's about seven years after the rapture. On the Mount of Olives, when he touches down and we will be with him. What a day that will be. Now, you say, you say does this mean we are going to see the temple rebuilt before the rapture? That would mean today. Not necessarily. Not necessarily. Why? Because there's a large obstacle in the way. Would you give me a couple more minutes here? Thank you. There's a very large obstacle in the way. Those of you that have been to Jerusalem or you've seen pictures of Jerusalem, you can't miss it. It's a mosque. And the name of the mosque? The Dome of the Rock. In the late 60s, 600s, Omar, a guy by the name of Omar, he, 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 he built this mosque on, on, on 35 acres over the rock, believed at that time, in the 600s, to be the site of the Holy of Holies. Now this, he knew, would make it impossible to rebuild the temple. He knew a thing or two about biblical prophecy. So what we'll do? We'll just build a mosque on this site, site of the Holy of Holies. Why would we do that? Because the Muslims would immediately invade Israel, and it would be World War III if anything happened to the mosque. Oh, it's a fascinating place. Those of you going with us to Israel next month, you'll see it, and you'll sense the tension right there at the entrance to the mosque. And I'm sorry, I can't get you inside. Oh, I would love to take you in so you can see for yourself, but I've tried. And I'll probably try again, but every time I failed. Impossible. But, but, in 1983, after spending 16 years studying the Temple Mount with some of the foremost archaeologists and scholars of the world, Dr. Asher Kaufman, who was a physicist and an archaeologist at the Hebrew University concluded that while the Mosque of Omar, the Dome of the Rock, was thought to sit on the Holy of Holies site, the true location is actually 100 meters, that's about 109 yards, north. So when we go there, we will go 100 meters north of the mosque. What's there? What's 100 meters north of the Dome of the Rock? It's nothing special at all. It's like, it's just a very small gazebo that you would see in the town center of Rifle or Silt or 
any one of the small Colorado towns. It's just a very small little nondescript gazebo. But underneath the gazebo, and you can walk inside this gazebo, you can look down inside the gazebo because underneath the gazebo, the original bedrock of the temple is exposed. It's the only other place the original bedrock of the temple is exposed. Then the only other one is the jagged rock within the Dome of the Rock or the Mosque of Omer. That rock is very, very jagged. Maybe you've seen pictures of it. This stone, 100 meters north of the gazebo, is flat, almost perfectly flat. A much more likely setting for the Ark of the Covenant that stood within the Holy of Holies. So despite Indiana Jones, the Ark of the Covenant is not in a giant warehouse in Washington, D.C. So I thank, thank you for giving me a couple more minutes. Thank you. I appreciate this. This is the first time I've gone a little bit over time. But in addition to a more logical site, this site is more historically accurate according to the Mishnah. Most of you know about the Mishnah. These are a very reliable book. It's not the Bible, but it's a very reliable book of Jewish oral tradition. Very respected. And according to the Mishnah, when the priest stood in the Holy of Holies on the Day of Atonement, only one day a year, he could look through the veil of the Holy of Holies, picture it, he's in the Holy of Holies, just small, there's the Ark of the Covenant, and outside the veil, through the door, and see the eastern gate of the city of Jerusalem directly in front of him. In 1970, Oh, this is a mission that Jake, I think, is a, as a warrior. I think Jake would, would love to be a part of this military mission. I know I would. Uh, this is a mission, a secret mission, where some archaeologists did a secret excavation, risking the possibility of starting World War III, and confirmed that the original eastern gate is directly below the existing eastern gate that you see, uh, of, of Jerusalem. And if you stand 100 meters north of the Dome of the Rock, the eastern gate is in plain view. It matches up perfectly, like a sundial, or like, as veteran Jake would know, a triangulation of the rifle. It is just perfect. In addition, when the Muslims built this small gazebo in 6 AD, they gave it two names. Hang with me, gang. The Dome of the Spirit and the Dome of the Tablets. The Muslims gave that name, the Dome of the Tablets. Even the Islam recognizes this site as the spot where the tablets, that's the tablets that Moses held. You know, Charlton Heston, one in each hand. The tablets that Moses held, uh, they went inside the Ark of the Covenant in the Holy of Holies, and the Holy Spirit, the Shekinah glory of God, or the Shabbat, the glory of God over the Ark of the Covenant had been. Therefore, according to almost all reputable biblical scholars, the temple could be rebuilt and the Dome of the Rock would remain standing. Did you follow me on that? But, but the Dome of the Rock would be in the outer courtyard of the temple. Verse 2. 
Now, during the Six-Day War, 1967, some of you remember that. I sure do. I was in the Marine Corps at that time. Israel recaptured the city of Jerusalem for the first time since 586 B.C. And General Moshe Dayan, a hero in Israel, let the Muslims keep control of the 35-acre parcel of ground where the Dome of the Rock is, stands today. He could never explain why he did it. And we're going to end with this tonight. He did it, even though he didn't understand. He did it. So to this day, where we are right now, the outer court of the temple remains, quote, turned over to the nations. Verse 2. And there you have it, gang. We are close. All the instruments used in temple worship, all the tools, not just replicas, they are finished. And those of you going with, to Israel with us next month, you will see them, not replicas, you will see them with your very eyes. Some say the stones of the temple are already cut. I don't know. I don't know. Some say they are, others say they're not. But we do know that that temple can go up very quickly and temple worship, including the sacrifice on the four horns of the altar, will be instituted once again in fulfillment of prophecy. And this will take place not at the beginning of the seven-year tribulation, but in the middle of the seven-year tribulation. We are close. We are close. Every prophecy, every single one that needs to be fulfilled before Jesus calls us to meet him in the clouds, to meet him in the air, every single one has already been fulfilled. And most, but not all, of the prophecies have been fulfilled before Jesus comes back to planet Earth with us, sets down on the Mount of Olives, and the Mount of Olives splits wide open, and there's an earthquake. And then we go to the final seven judgments next week, the bold judgments. So we've covered the seal judgments. We've covered the trumpet judgments. And you say, wow, Dave, I'm, I'm glad that's over. Well, sorry, gang, the worst is yet to come. Because the final judgments are not called the tribulation. They are called the great tribulation. And during that time, we're going to see the Battle of Armageddon. So take a look at your map. And we have some maps up here. If you don't have a map uh, on uh, Magog and uh, Russia and so forth and so on, uh, these countries mentioned in the Bible, uh, they're, they're free. Help yourself or look at a bigger map and get ready because next week we start the, the third part, the seven seal judgments. And then once we get through that, whew, then heaven, here we come. Millennium, here we come. And we'll look in depth what we'll be doing, what our position will be in the millennium, what the crowns that you will all be given, what they represent, and the position that you will have in heaven and the millennium. And we're going to end on that note. Father, thank you so much that your word is good. Oh, it's honey to our lips. But Lord, may it also be bitter 
in our gut. When we think of family members, loved ones, friends that know about you, but they don't know you. They don't have that intimate relationship with you. Oh, Lord, may Jesus be seen in us as we draw close to him in prayer and in the word. In whose name we pray, amen.